Hey, Rob. A little chilly this morning. That's why I got the scarf. Yeah, I, <laughs> I couldn't resist that. I'm sorry. I, yeah, we, we give him a hard time every... <laughs> uh, oh, well. You know, Friday evening I found out that um, if, I, um, if this happens to me, I, I really can't depend on Becky with a Heimlich. Isn't that what it's called? Maneuver? Yeah. So... I think we're going to, you know, go somewhere and take a lesson on that or something. I, um, has, that, has this ever happened to anybody where you're eating something and it gets caught? Man, that is like, scares you out of your ever-loving mind when, like, you know, anyway. Now, ask Becky and she'll tell you it worked, but I know it went down this way, so, all right. Well, I'm, I'm guessing that at some point, we've all struggled with this thing that can be called performance anxiety, where we identify our, our sense of worth, our significance by what we've done, how well we performed, who we are, by how successful we've been in being able to uh, achieve what we've set out to do. You know, whether it's success in our, you know, academic success or success in our career or success in our marriage or success as a, as a parent or, or athletic success. I think we can all relate to this at some point. And this way of thinking, it, 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 it kind of goes like this. If, if, I'm, if I've succeeded in what I want to succeed at, then I'm a, I'm a valued person. But if I haven't succeeded, then my value is diminished. It can, it can include a lot of things about who we are and what we've done. It can, it can include how we look, how, I mean, it doesn't take long in life and we begin to get a picture of how attractive we are or we we aren't, it can be how we dress, you know, and the latest styles, the right brand, I mean, jeans, for example. I mean, there are some jeans that are cool, and there are other jeans that are, are not cool. I mean, all jeans are made out of denim, but they're worlds apart in turn. I mean, can you, let's have a test up here. Which, which one is cool and which one isn't cool? Any guesses on that? Any opinions? John, Kasky. Huh? The one on the left, do you like that one the best? Well, it looks like somebody yeah, yeah, it does. Okay, well, great. You know, our, our, our sense of worth, thanks, John, for your input. It, it, yeah, yeah it, it can come by the things that we own, the house we live in, the car we drive, or, you know, the toys we play with. I mean, there are children's toys and there are adult toys, right? And, and, and sometimes our... Our, our identity, our sense of worth comes with the toys that we've got in our lives. This performance thinking can begin at a very young age and it can stay with a person till the day they die. In fact, I, you know, I was, I was thinking back, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that makes it a challenge to grow up as a kid. Because, boy, if you ever, I mean, performance is everywhere, but it's certainly in 
in school. It's something we can do to ourselves. It's something that the world in which we live does to us. And, And when it happens, it creates a lot of anxiety. It's like we're always writing a resume to to make ourselves look good, to look good to ourselves and and look good to others. Now, it's one thing to do this at a physical or material level. It's a a whole other thing when we do it in our spiritual lives. It's, It's a different deal. It's something far more impactful when we bring performance into our relationship with God, into our spiritual life. Performance in, in terms of how good a person we are, how, how well we measure up to God's standard of righteousness. Live with this mindset and you set yourself up for a relationship with God that's distant and, and strained and, and joyless. You're always performing and, 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 and you, if you do that, you're always living with this anxiety that you haven't done quite, quite good enough. The Apostle Paul lived this way for many years. And through these years, he, he created a, an impressive resume. If there's ever someone who had a resume he could, he could think made him look Good to God. Paul, Paul was the man. He was the man. But he, what he tells us in the set of verses we come to this morning is that it, it did nothing for him. Absolutely nothing. Fact is, it was his biggest problem. It messed with his relationship with God. His, his spiritual resume was the one thing that kept him at a, at a, at a distant and strained relationship with God. It, it just sucked the joy out of his life. Paul was so concerned, the Philippians not miss this, that what he writes in the first nine verses of chapter 3, he writes in words that are as strong and pointed as any he could have chosen. At times they're, they're, they're graphic and I would say even shocking. You know, everybody, this whole thing of, of writing, preparing a sermon, it's just, it's, it's really, a, it's, it's hard, it's challenging, but it's absolutely fascinating there. Each Monday, I was telling Becky this last night, we were talking about, you come in on a Monday morning and, and, and you know, especially if you haven't, whenever you begin the sermon, many sermons I'll begin, you know, several weeks in advance, but when you begin it, you, you start with a blank computer screen, you know, and you wonder, how's it going to all fill in? And, and, I mean, I just go through this over and over again, and I, I, it happened to me this week. I get into this passage of Scripture, and I go like, as I'm getting into it, it's like, wow. You know, this is just amazing. This is brilliant what Paul wrote. And I can understand why he was so passionate about this, why he, why he said it the way he said it. Because Paul loved the Philippians. He loved, he loved people. He just had so much compassion for people. And, and, and Paul, with everything inside of himself, he, he wanted these people to, to not lose the joy that was theirs in Jesus Christ, that, that that would never be taken away from them. And he saw some, some men who were trying to suck it out of their life by what they were misleading, you know, trying to mislead these people with. 
See, the righteousness of God had been given to them through Jesus Christ, and Paul doesn't want them to lose the, their understanding of that. Key word in these nine verses is the word righteousness. And, and there's two things that I'd like us to see this morning. It's just such a privilege to share this with you. It's so important to know. And, 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 and the first one is this. It might surprise you to hear this, but, but righteousness can... Can, can really be a major stumbling block in our life. It, it has the potential to be our most fundamental problem. And so we're going to see that. And then the second thing, it's righteousness is the greatest gift we can receive from God. So let's begin with the problem that it can be. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes this. He said, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's that joy thing again. He said, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. It's that, it's that second sentence in that verse that leads into everything else Paul wrote in the next eight verses. And Paul's saying, I've, I've already talked this through with you. I've already talked this through with you, but... He said, it's so critical to your spiritual joy that, that in, and, and your safety. He said, it's, it's worth talking through again with you. And so really what this says to us today is we come to that and it's like, heads up, heads up, you know, listen to this. Here's what's so unusual. Paul was a scholar. He was very educated. He was at a PhD level. You listen to someone with a PhD talk or, or read what they write and more often than not they're, they're very careful in what they say. Everything they write is footnoted, it's nuanced, I mean they're very reserved and, and what we find here is that there's, there's nothing reserved in how Paul describes these men. I mean look at this, verse 2. And I've got things turned around a little bit, so thank the back there. He said, watch out for those dogs. Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. It's like, I want to say, well, tell me, Paul, how do you really feel about these guys? You know? um, dogs. Evil workers. Men who do evil. Mutilators of the flesh. So the first one, dogs, you know, the first thing to know is that when Paul calls these guys dogs, he, he wasn't thinking of golden retrievers, all right, like our dog Sackett, or Weeby's dog, uh, uh, Obi, from Obi-Wan Kenobi, Star, Star Wars, and that, do you know what kind of dog that is? It's a have-a-poo. It's a half-poodle, Okay. You see, Paul's not talking about that kind of a dog. or The, the kind of dog he's talking about is the kind of dog you'd, you'd never want next door. Like John Alford's dog, Princess. All right? You know? I keep telling John, you know, really. No, it's, John doesn't have a dog. Okay. You see, in, in, in the first century... Dogs were mangy, wild animals that carried all kinds of diseases. They, they were a public nuisance. They, they, they were barking all the time. They were attacking people. They were dangerous animals. So it's not a nice thing to say about another person that they're a dog. It's, 
Okay? And, and then he goes on, he said, men who do evil are evil workers. Not a compliment. And so you ask yourself, who are these men? I mean, Paul's next description begins to answer that question for us. He's, he said they're mutilators of the flesh. I mean, that, that doesn't sound good, does it? Mutilators of the flesh. So what do we have here? How, how does this answer who these guys are? You see, there's, there's another way this word, and it's really one word in Greek, is translated into English, and it helps us understand who's Paul who Paul's describing, your Bible might have it this way. He, he was saying, beware of the false circumcision. Uh, I go, what, what's that all about? You know, really, it's actually a little bit easier to understand when we read what Paul wrote in the next verse. So verse 3, he said this, for it is we, we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now, I think we, uh, we all know what circumcision is, right? Great teaching opportunity for some of you parents now when you go home today. Here's what Paul's up against. The, the Jewish religious leaders, for as long as anyone could re remember, taught that for any person to be accepted by God, there had to be some level of religious performance. What we talked about when I began the sermon. And they were, they were really, really good at, at imposing uh, this performance anxiety on other people, on, and, 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 they, and, and they did it by creating this list, a very long list of, of what you shouldn't do and what you should do, that they said had to be followed for a person to be accepted by God. And at the top of that list was this thing of circumcision. You, you had to be circumcised to be accepted by God. Now, stay with me on this. It's worth understanding, all right? This whole thing of circumcision goes back to Abraham, back to Genesis chapter 17, where Abraham is this 99-year-old guy with a wife 10 years his junior, and God's telling him that they're going to have a son. And so you've got a 99-year-old guy with an 89-year-old wife, and God is saying, you're going to have a baby. I mean, it's a, I mean, just imagine. I mean, my mother-in-law's. 87, I think, right now. I can't imagine that, okay? It's a chapter that is filled with God's promise to bless Abraham and the entire world through Abraham. I mean, Genesis chapter 17 is a great chapter, and it's, and it's one worth reading, and it all begins with God doing from, for Abraham and Sarah what they had never been able to do themselves. God gets them pregnant. How? Huh? Now, to help Abraham remember that it was God who made this possible, God had Abraham circumcise himself. So he just wouldn't forget this. So from the very first time circumcision was done, 
It was intended to emphasize that it's not what we do for ourselves, but it's what God does for us. And, and if, you, if you trace this all the way through the Old Testament, the, the, the main point of all of this is that it's God who makes us righteous. We can't make ourselves righteous. Now, these religious leaders, the men Paul called dogs and evil workers and mutilators of the flesh, they took what was supposed to be a symbol that you and I cannot make ourselves righteous, and, and they turned it in, into a way to make ourselves righteous. They, 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 they made it mean the exact opposite of what, of what God intended. And this is what Paul's confronting. And he does it in the strongest words possible because he's passionate about this. He's white hot in his commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's not hesitating to use words that are graphic and shocking. And the first thing he does is to confront it by using, giving his own resume. We all know what a resume is, right? And you know, it's something, if you can see that, you know, your education, your professional experience, uh, any other information, you know, in a, in a resume, you, you, you give everything, everything you possibly can give about yourself, your, your background, your education, your training, your experience, and, and you do it with the idea that, that you want to get into something, right? You want to you get into a certain place to work, or you want to you get into a school. Let's see what Paul put into his. And again, it's... <laughs> He, the way he does this thing is to have shock value. And so if, if Paul was ever hesitant to, to boast about himself, all that hesitancy goes out. I mean, he's, he's just putting it right out there, all right? And so in the second half of verse 4, he says, if anyone, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's saying, if there's anybody who could think that his resume of righteousness makes him good enough before, to God, he said, I, it be me, okay? And he said, I can prove it to you, and, and he gives his resume, and he begins that in, in verse 5, and, and, and the thing to understand this is that everything he lists in this resume are things that it would, would impress the people who are trying to sidetrack the Philippians. So let's look at each one of these very quickly. He said, uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people Of Israel, okay? I mean, uh, that was the exact day it was supposed to be done. Uh, he was 100% Jewish. You know, he wasn't somebody who was a Gentile, became a Jew. I mean, and, and then he said that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He could actually trace his ancestry back to the very tribe that he came from. He said, I'm a Hebrew of, of Hebrews, that that's another way of saying I'm the best of the best. And then he said, in, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Pharisees back then were very respected because, because they knew the law inside and out. Not only did they know it, but everybody had the impression that they lived it. Okay? And then he said, as for zeal, persecuting the church. This this might be Paul's biggest claim to fame in the eyes of these people who, who are, that, he's, that he's talking about here so strongly, okay? And, and he wasn't exaggerating, all right? If you were a follower of Christ in the early days of the church, Paul would have been your worst enemy, okay? 
Luke described him this way in the ninth chapter of Acts. He said, meanwhile, Saul, and, and Saul was his name before Christ changed it to Paul. He said, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Who knows how many believers were imprisoned or lost their life because of Paul? Doesn't sound good to us, but let me tell you, it was very impressive to these false teachers, these men trying to lead the Philippians astray. I said this was Paul's biggest claim to fame. I, actually, I think it's his second biggest. He saved the biggest for last. He said, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Saying, look at the life I've lived, and you see that I, I've kept every law that there was to keep. And you know what? I bet he did. See, I think Paul was the kind of guy that drove everybody else crazy around him. I mean, can't you see that? He's with a group of his friends, and they all want to do something that's, you know, fun, all right? But to do it, they've, got to, they've just got to bend the rules a little bit, just a little bit. And everybody's cool with doing this except for Paul. Paul going, no, 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 guys. And that, that would be breaking rule number 245, you know? See, I think Paul was that kind of a guy. This was Paul's resume. It was first string. He was A team. He was as good as it got. And so what's his point? What, what's this got to do with anything? Here's what he's doing. Using his own resume, his own religious performance, he's, he's taking the very thing these religious leaders were trying to impose on the Philippians and he's trashing it. Truth is, and Paul's admitting it here, for most of his life he was driven by religious performance. For years he was convinced that he could perform his way to God and he, and he was good at it and he knew he was good at it and frankly everybody knew he was good at it. He was like at the top of the heap. But, but here's the deal and here's why Paul said, said all of this in these verses. You see, Paul's resume, his resume of righteousness, it was his most fundamental problem. It messed with his relationship with God. And here's why. It was the very thing that for so many years kept him from recognizing his need of God's righteousness and recognizing it, receiving it. You see, it wasn't his sin that tripped him up. It, it wasn't that Paul wanted to be such a bad sinner. It, it, it was that he thought he was such a good person. And the more I thought about this and the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that Paul is every man. His problem is the same problem that can keep any one of us from receiving God's gift of righteousness. It's, it's looking at our own righteousness and thinking, thinking that we don't need God's righteousness because we're good enough. But don't miss this, everybody, because this could be you. It might be that you've been doing this your whole life, looking at how good you are and thinking that it's good enough. You see, you know, what you're doing is you're, you're putting your spiritual resume up against others and you're thinking that you're better than most. You might think that you've outperformed almost everybody and you might even place yourself right at the top. 
Friend, if you've been doing this, I, I've got to say to you this morning, you need to know that your righteousness, this, this resume of sorts that you've created, is your, it's your single most fundamental problem. It's messing with your whole life. It's, it's the very thing that's keeping you from recognizing your spiritual need and, and, and recognizing this, receiving God's righteousness. There's two reasons this all changed for Paul. Two reasons he changed from being a Christ hater to becoming a Christ follower. And the first one is that he saw Jesus Christ alive. He saw him resurrected. And the second is that his eyes were open to understand that his own righteousness wasn't good enough. He understood that he needed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He needed the greatest gift that anybody could receive from God. And, and so he, he turns the corner and, and, and in verse 7 he, he writes this. And, and, and by the way, before I read that, remember, he's still white hot about this. And so how he says all of this is going to be intense and it's going to be graphic and it's going to even be shocking. So in verse 7 he makes a statement. He he said, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of, of Christ. We, what we might say is Paul, Paul's doing some spiritual accounting with his life. And he took everything good that he's done, his whole life's worth, all of his righteousness, his entire spiritual resume, and he put it up against the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he said, you know what? I found out that I am absolutely spiritually bankrupt. He unpacks this even more. So, verse 8. And again, I got to tell you, okay? I mean, you really had to... Paul used a very graphic word in the, verse, the two verses I'm about to read that the translators dressed up quite a bit for us English readers. All right? Let's see if you can identify, guess which word it is. Verse 8. In fact, you could raise your hand or stop me if you think you know what it is. Or just wait. Okay. He said, what is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I, I have lost all things. I consider them <clears throat> rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Anybody guess which word? Rubbish. Rubbish. Just so you know something here, everybody. This is not the garbage that you take out once a week and put at the end of your driveway. It's feces. It's talking about. You know what that is? Another word for it is crap. All right? So I want to tell you, I want you to see how blunt Paul was right here. Here's what he's saying, and I put it up here. He said, all my righteousness, this impressive resume of a life I've lived, it isn't worth, yeah, I'm stronger word, up next to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All week long I've debated, should I say it or shouldn't I say it? You know, I don't need to. You know what it is? 
Righteousness that became mine through faith in Christ's death for my sin. Listen, everybody. I can't possibly overemphasize how important this is to understand. What makes a person a Christian is to understand and say to yourself, you know what, I now see that when I was being good, when I was just creating my own spiritual resume that would make me acceptable to God, I was trying to be my own savior. And that just doesn't work. See, becoming a Christian is realizing that not only do we need to repent of our sin, we need to repent of our righteousness. It's recognizing how spiritually bankrupt we are before a holy God. It's, it's humbling ourselves and, and giving up our spiritual resume and accepting the resume of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's doing what the hymn writer James Proctor put into words way back in the 1700s. He said this, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, stand in him, in him alone, wondrously complete. You understand why Paul is so passionate about this? What we're talking about, friend, is if you take your resume and you exchange it for the resume of Jesus Christ, what you can have at that moment is the absolute righteousness of God. So that God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin, he sees you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, friend, you might have come here this morning and you, you might have been doing your own resume thing. And this morning, it's like the light came on and you've understood, you understand the grace of God. You understand what it's all about. And you, you're, just, you're saying, you know what? I want to trade resumes. I want to, I want to take my resume and I want to exchange it for the resume of Jesus Christ. You can do that today. No performance. You don't have to walk up. You don't have to do anything other than just simply saying to God, and Rob's going to come and lead us in a song that's really going to be very fitting. And just saying to God, God, here's my resume. I want the resume of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's stand and let me pray. Okay. I, I love this verse from 2 Corinthians 5.21. I thought of it yesterday. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, for that one or two or more people out here this morning um, in this room with us who walked in with their own resume, Father, I pray that before this day ends, and even before they leave this place, that they would take their resume and they would, they would pray these words, God, I take all of my righteousness, I take all that I've been performing, and God, I give it up. I give it up for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I, I give it up for his resume. 
Oh God, I pray that there would not be a single person in this room today who would let this day finish without grabbing onto that resume of Christ. Because then God, and this is why Paul cared so much, then they have the righteousness of Jesus Christ and with the righteousness of Jesus Christ they have a life that can be close and loving with you. They can have a life that's filled with joy and they can have a life that's eternal. Praise you, God, for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.